Good morning, everybody. My name is Greg Fondell, and uh, it's a real privilege to be with you this morning at Restoration. I've had a chance to uh, worship here a few times, and uh, really is a, a wonderful church family that you have. And uh, also, I want to thank you for being a terrific church family for my daughter and son-in-law, uh, Sarah and Michael Van Dyken. Uh, they've really enjoyed this fellowship, and uh, we are really delighted that they found a church home here. Um, just want to uh, uh, launch into this message, telling you a little bit about uh, Joseph's life today. And uh, before we do that, I'd like to ask you to bow with me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. We live in a time when it seems that we are either in the midst of a crisis or coming out of one or just about to go in one. There is nothing we'd like to avoid more than crises. What if we could? Psychologist Jonathan Haig proposes this exercise. He says, imagine that when your child is born, that in the first five minutes of life, you are given a script of every trial and tragedy that will occur for him or her. You're also given an eraser, and you're, you, have, you have the opportunity to remove any difficulty and disaster that would occur in their lives. So the script says that your child will have a learning disability in grade school, and that reading, will, which comes mostly easily for other children, will be laborious for him or her. And then when the child gets to high school, the script says that he or she will have a great circle of friends, but at one point, one of those close friends will die of cancer. Then after high school, she or he will get into the college that they wanted to attend, and they will have a great experience for a couple of years, and then will go get into a car crash and go through a very long recovery followed by a very deep depression. A few years later, he or she will land a great job, but eventually lose that job in an economic downturn. He or she will get married, but they will experience the grief of a separation. So you get this script for your child's life, and you have five minutes to edit it. What would you erase? Wouldn't you want to take out all of those episodes of pain or hardship or grief that they experience. I'm part of a generation of adults that some, are sometimes called helicopter parents because we constantly try to swoop into our children's life to make sure that nobody is mistreating them and nothing is disappointing them. It's up to us, if it's up to us, we would give them that opportunity to have unobstructed success in everything that they do. But will that make them better, stronger, more true-hearted, more generous human beings? Could it be possible that they actually need adversity, setbacks, difficulties, heartache, hardship to reach their fullest level of maturity? Is it possible that they will come to know God in crises? like they never would otherwise. 
The sons of Jacob were the great-grandsons of Abraham. They were the couriers of God's covenant. The tribes of Israel will bear their names. Jesus Christ will come from their family line. But in spite of their prominence, they are the Bronze Age version of a dysfunctional family. Genesis 37.2 introduces us to Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's 11 sons. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, can you imagine a little brother doing something like that? We don't know if they mistreated him or if they were goofing off when they should have been working or if Joseph was just making stuff up. Verses 3 and 4 tell us, But Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. The writer is telling us about some very messy family dynamics here. Jacob had a wife named Rachel, and she was his favorite. Rachel couldn't have children, so she said to Jacob, Since I can't have children, you go have children with my maidservant, Bilhah. Leah, who was also Jacob's wife, but a distant second to Rachel, said to Jacob, I'm going to close up shop too, and you go have children with my maidservant, Zilpah. Now what this means is that the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah were on lower rungs of the family ladder. Rachel finally did have a son, Joseph, who became the favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife. He made his father's eyes light up when he came into the room. If Joseph ever had a problem, he would run to daddy, and daddy would fix it for him. And he was also given this fabulous new coat, while the other sons wore work clothes and hand-me-downs. This family could have had their own reality show. But it's not all that surprising, really, when you think about it. Dysfunction has been handed down for generations in this family. In the book of Genesis, it was one of the earliest manifestations of the curse of sin. Adam blamed Eve. Cain killed his brother Abel. Abraham lied about his wife Sarah to save his own skin on two different occasions. And then he had a son, Ishmael, with his wife's servant, Hagar. Later, he abandoned them both in the desert when his wife got jealous of him. And Rebekah favored her son Isaac and or her son Jacob and, and deceived her husband Isaac on his behalf. And Jacob cheated his brother Esau, and then he was cheated by his father-in-law Laban. He made Jacob work for seven years to win the hand of his daughter Rachel. And then on the night of the wedding, he pulled the old switcheroo and subbed in cross-eyed Leah. And Laban made Jacob work another seven years so that he could marry Rachel. So Jacob had two wives, but he had one true love, 
When Rachel died, Jacob kept the memory of his wife alive by fawning over their son, Joseph. And his brothers despised him because of his father's favoritism. Joseph was a little slow to pick up on this animosity. He had a dream one night, and he woke up, and he couldn't wait to tell his brothers about it. He ran out to the fields, and he said, you've got to hear about this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, do you think his brothers were kind of excited to hear about Joseph's dream? His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So we're thinking, you know, Joseph, if you have any more dreams for crying out loud, I mean, keep them to yourself. But then he had another dream, and he couldn't wait to tell his brothers about it. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were all bowing down to me. Isn't that cool? Don't you love these dreams? His brothers couldn't take it anymore. So one day they kidnapped him and they threw him in a cistern, a pit, to die. And they took his coat and they covered it with animal blood. And they planned to tell their father that a wild animal had attacked him. But at the last minute, they decided to turn a profit by selling him to slave traders on the way to Egypt. Now overnight... Joseph lost his status, he lost his home, he lost his financial resources, his parents, his bright future, his culture, his family, everything. Now before this, if he had a problem, if things in his world got shaky, he could run to daddy and things would be just fine. Before this, if you were to ask him who he was, he would have told you, I'm the number one son of the number one wife, and the favorite, I wear the robe. Before this, if you had to ask him about his future, he would have said, I am going to be the head of the family. They are all going to bow down at my feet. You know, what happened to Joseph is what happens or has happened or will happen to all of us. We ordinarily think that we kind of go along with normal life, where we hold on to certain illusions. I'm secure because I have this money, and because I have my health, and because I have these abilities. And I have an identity because I have this job, and I have a great resume, and I have this degree, And I have a list of things that I've accomplished. And I'm going to achieve more tomorrow and more the day after that and the day after that. But then one day, these things are revealed to be illusions by a crisis that breaks into our normal lives. Maybe it's a financial crash. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe someone you love dies. Maybe someone you trust betrays you. 
Maybe there's a scandal and you lose your reputation. Maybe your child rejects you. When a crisis comes, everything that we've been counting on, all the stuff that we've been living for, it crumbles. It feels like we've fallen off a cliff. And reflexively we ask, so why did this happen to me? And sadly, we usually don't get that satisfying an explanation. For Joseph, pick an answer. I mean, he was living in a society where it was okay to sell people for slavery. Or it was okay to marry multiple wives. Or maybe it was his brother's fault. I mean, they hated him and they betrayed him. Or it was his own fault. He reveled in being the favorite. He trumpeted that position. He was always talking smack that he couldn't back up with his brothers. And he was horribly insensitive to their feelings. Or maybe it was his dad's fault. His father was blind to his favoritism, and he was also blind to the tension that was rising in the family, which is kind of surprising when you think about it, that Jacob grew up knowing the pain of having his father, Isaac, favor his brother Esau. Isaac grew up in a rivalry with his brother, Ishmael, and Abraham had played favorites too. This had been going on for a long time in this family. And Joseph probably asked, as we do, well, why me? And most of the time, we don't get an explanation. But we might just as easily ask, why not me? With all of the pain and the suffering and the hardship and grief in this broken world, why should I expect anything different? But eventually we move to the bigger question, which is, what do I have, I have left when what I thought I could stand on is swept away? I thought I could stand on my health and my marriage and my IQ, my abilities, my good intentions, my job, my talent, my friends, my reputation, and then one day the world shook. What's left? Joseph was taken to Egypt where he was sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers. And nobody there cared that he was daddy's favorite. And nobody there cared about his dreams. He was a penniless, powerless slave in a strange house, in a strange land with no friends and no prospects and no explanation why. What in the world did Joseph have left? Just this one thing. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, because the Lord was with Joseph, he didn't have any more problems. Everything worked out great with Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. They loved him, and they all lived happily ever after, and it's a really short story. It didn't really happen like that, though. Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's lustful wife and thrown into prison for a crime that he never committed. Genesis 39, 20 and 21 tell us, but while Joseph was there in prison, 
the Lord was with him. Now, one of the fellow prisoners was troubled by a dream. The prisoner had once held a powerful position as the cupbearer for the pharaoh. Joseph interpreted the man's dream, telling him that he would be released from prison and he would be restored to his former position. So this could be good for Joseph. Now he would have somebody on the outside with the pharaoh's ear who could maybe put a good word in for him. But once the cupbearer was released, he completely forgot about Joseph. Joseph falls and he falls and he falls, but he keeps falling into the arms of God. The Lord was with him. He lived in a prison cell for two more years until dreams came into the picture once again. The troubling dreams of the ruler of Egypt Pharaoh couldn't find anyone to interpret those dreams, and he was distraught about that. When the cupbearer heard about how upset he was, he finally made a referral. Genesis 41, 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. Now Joseph stood at one of those dramatic junctures, one of the most dramatic junctures of his life, all resting on the interpretation of a dream about fat cows and skinny cows and sleek cows and ugly cows, stalks of grain. Joseph heard the dream and then he took a deep breath and he said, seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. Then all of the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance of the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. Pharaoh was stunned, but he was also amazed. He appointed Joseph to be the prime minister with the responsibility of storing up the surplus food that could be produced during the plentiful years and then managing that distribution during the seven years of famine so that the people of Egypt will survive. Now, when the famine struck, that whole corner of the world was devastated. Neighboring countries were starving. Genesis 41, 57 says, All countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was so severe in the land. Joseph is managing a worldwide crisis. He is the key person for that survival of that entire region. He saves them with his good management. But guess who shows up during this crisis? Joseph's brothers arrive from Canaan, and they're hungry. Dealing with family drama is one thing, but dealing with family drama on low blood sugar, that's a different story. Joseph realized, here are my brothers. My brothers who hated me, who threw me into a pit, who sold me into slavery. They're standing right in front of me, 
and they don't know who I am. And Genesis 42, 7 tells us, he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. And then he had them imprisoned as foreign spies. Now, Joseph has been such a noble guy, a good guy, through all of these crises. How do we explain this gruff voice, this unfair accusation, this unjust imprisonment? I think he was trying to get his bearings. This was probably the toughest challenge of his life. It was tougher than being sold into slavery. It was tougher than being thrown into prison. It was tougher than managing a worldwide catastrophe. I think family hurt is the toughest hurt there is. This was Joseph's deepest pain because it was inflicted early in his life by people who should have been trustworthy, should have been on his side. After only three days in prison, he released his brothers and he allowed them to return to Canaan. And as they were preparing to leave, Joseph overheard them talking. They said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw anguish in his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear him. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. When he overheard that conversation, Joseph stepped into the shadows and wept. They didn't recognize him, but they remembered him. And they remembered the harm that they had done to him. And right then, Joseph's heart began to soften. He sent them back to Canaan with extra grain loaded into their saddlebags. This was a moment of grace. Now, the process of healing those family wounds was still long and difficult for Joseph. Covers four chapters in the book of Genesis and probably at least a year in his life. Some of us, all too many of us perhaps, understand that family wounds heal very slowly. In the midst of our hurt, we're tempted to make the quickest, easiest choice. To walk out the door, to seal off our hearts, to build up walls and hunker down behind them in resentment and bitterness. Maybe your family failed you in some way. And you've made the best of it. Like Joseph, you've made a life for yourself. You're happy to leave your painful past behind you. But God isn't. He wants not only your whole heart, but he wants your heart whole. And in order for us to be whole, we need to be healed of old wounds. Why does God care about our painful pasts? At least two reasons. First, God wants to help you for your own sake. 
Because hurt people hurt people. Maybe you wonder why you have such a short fuse. Maybe you wonder why you're always driven to please others. Maybe you wonder why you're so fearful of conflict. Might it have something to do with some unhealed pain from your past? Hurt people hurt people. And for that reason, God wants to help you. But it's not just for you. He wants to help you for the sake of your family. He doesn't want the wounds that you have carried to be passed on to the next generation. Have you ever considered the possibility that you could be a Joseph in your family? That you may have inherited a lot of pain and problems, but this generational struggle can stop with you. There was a lot riding on Joseph's compassion because God had this bigger plan surrounding this family. He was at work bringing redemption to a family line that had been haunted by jealousy and favoritism and violence for generations. And Joseph stands in the place to be able to correct that downward spiral. Because of his powerful position, he was also in a place to protect the lineage of Jesus during that famine. Egypt became the place where the people of Israel multiplied from a small Bedouin tribe of 70 or so people to hundreds of thousands of people by the time that Moses led them out of captivity. God was protecting and multiplying the descendants of Abraham because Jesus Christ will come from this family tree. The plan all hinges upon Joseph's compassion and mercy for his brothers. Suppose Joseph decided to execute his brothers, his foreign spies, out of revenge for what they had done to him. Or suppose he sent them back to Canaan to starve. Joseph made a different choice. He said, stops with me. It stops with me. About six months ago, I, had a friend, I have a friend who was called to a funeral home to identify the bodies of his father and his brother who were killed in a murder-suicide. This was one tragic incident in a long pattern of angry outbursts and acts of violence that have ravaged his family over the course of many years. Shortly after that awful event, my friend resolved. He said, it stops with me. And even in the midst of his own profound grief, 
He has intentionally been gathering that disconnected family together to talk and to pray and to forgive. Some of us know that there are dark secrets in our past. Too often, they come to define who we are in the present. Perhaps it's time to bring them into the light. Revealing leads to healing. Like Joseph stepping into the shadows and weeping, we too, we can step into the prayer cove. We can talk to God and say, Lord, it hurt. It hurt my parents' anger or neglect or the rift that has occurred with brothers and sisters or a divorce that has changed my life. Lord, it hurt. And God can redeem us from that kind of woundedness, from those painful memories. But we need to Bring them into the light. Maybe your family history has some sad chapters. But your history doesn't have to be your future. Perhaps God's plan depends upon you being a Joseph in your family. Upon you standing up and saying, it stops with me. Soren Kierkegaard wrote that life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. From pit to palace, from prisoner to prime minister, from slave to savior. And in a moment of reflection, Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph recognized in all of those different passages that the Lord was with him. And he recognized that God has been at work even through all of those crises to now spare thousands, maybe Millions of lives. Although it had been his brother's intention to destroy life, it was always God's purpose to save, to redeem. Still is. Let's pray. God, we bring our lives before you in desperate need of the assurance that you're with us and that you are at work. God, you take what is ruined and you restore, what is broken and you heal, what is buried in sin and you save. Lord, our lives are in your hands. Please save us and heal us and use us. Let it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.